Hello everyone and welcome back to Voicecraft. Just a very short introduction today to what I think is a really interesting conversation with Anderson Todd, Eva McMullen and Tyler Hollett. Anderson's been on the podcast before and you can find those episodes which were fascinating explorations into the world of Jung and archetypes and evolution considered from that perspective. Tyler's also been on the podcast too. He joined for the Wiser Pathways episode. That was the first published conversation with Forrest and John. Tyler is a moderator and close collaborator over at voicecraft.network. Evan joins for the first time, but hopefully for many more. Many of the themes discussed here are active inquiries and very important to contend with, I think, as we turn this new corner into Web3 its promises, and its potential pitfalls. Hope you enjoy. And thank you very much to all the patrons for your continued support. It means a great deal. For those of you wishing to support the channel and the project more broadly, you can go to patreon.com slash voicecraft. Okay, here we go. It's a fascinating thing, this recording button. It does look like there is a broad technological advance towards viewing everything everywhere at all times so that some people have some finger of control on it. And then there's a certain amount of resistance to that, but it's not exactly clear what to do in response. I don't know if any of you guys caught the, uh, the Joe Rogan conversation that was just released yesterday with Daniel Schmachtenberger and Tristan Harris. Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to it, uh, I had some time, but also it's one of those ones where it seems like somewhat of a relevant social event, given how large Joe Rogan's podcast is. So it's kind of curious to see what, um, what, what, uh, what Schmachtenberger and Harris sort of take onto that platform and what, and what they have to express. But there seemed to be a, basically a... Um, uh, I wouldn't say an, an, an impasse, but the, the uncanny valley or the fog before us seems to be um, towards a third way that isn't either top-down sensocratic control a la the CCP, and then on the other side, um, maybe uh, attempts to mimic that and do it worse and kind of shoehorn whatever governments and social orders are in the West into following some mold of that, but not quite managing to do it in the same way. And then you have the sort of um, big tech doing its own version, perhaps entangled somehow with government and people are sort of not really sure. Um, but where, where, where is privacy in that world? Where is um, God? Where is, uh, how do we, how do we navigate the, this, the sovereignty of choice, I might say, if I was being a little bit more poetic, the, the, the dignity of spirit or soul, and it's, it's sort of, it's, it's nature to follow its own way. How can that coexist in an environment where there is exponential technology, exponential power, and catastrophe weapons, to use a term um, that Daniel Schmachtenberger uses? So we have, in this sense, so much, so much power, and there is a dearth of wisdom. That seems to be one of these broad narratives that's now being spoken about more 
consciously among many, many more millions and how that actually manages to filter or embody itself in genuine kinds of collaborative response to real patterns is a totally different question, but they were some of the dominant themes anyway of that particular conversation. And they're not a million miles away from what seems to me some of the most prescient framing, but um, of, of a conversation we might have together. But anyway, um, so we've spoken together before, accepting that Anderson and Evan are meeting together for the first time. And uh, I, it strikes me I haven't been the best host since kind of just launching right into things. I don't know if um, if you guys even know anything about each other at all. Is there some sort of I could I I'm um I generally like to walk off the plank in terms of stepping out into that associative space where I try to introduce people. So I'm happy to give that a crack if you like, Evan Anderson. <laughs> I, am, I am kind of curious. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a very curious. Yeah, thing. I'd like to give you some rope. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I could probably introduce you to better than I could even introduce Tyler, and I've spoken to Tyler many, many times. So I don't know what that means. Or even introduce myself. That's probably the hardest thing of all. Um, well, uh, Evan, I'm not sure if you know this. Anderson is a... Anderson, what's your title at the University of Toronto? Uh, assistant Professor Teaching Stream. There you go. Um, so I don't relate to Anderson basically at all like that. I relate, I relate to him as a, as, a, as a bloody interesting dude. And... <laughs> That basically is how I relate to everyone here. Um, we've had conversations. I wish that was my title at the university, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think last time I introduced you as a wizard. This time I've gone for bloody interesting dude. That's basically See, the same thing. Either of those are good. If I could get bloody interesting wizard, comma, teaching stream, I would be happy. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, God, we've spoken about a number of things. Um, I think most of our conversations have tended toward understanding or exploring the space around can a can a Jungian frame on something like evolution and the, the development of society have some interesting things to add into the zeitgeist conversation about who we are and what we're doing and how to relate to change uh, just recently Anderson Tyler and I had a conversation about nfts and and resourcing the transition in relation a little bit to the metaverse and um, bridges of wisdom or pathways of development that people might access in such spaces so as to participate perhaps more fully in their own becoming something like this um, in a way that's not disconnected from real patterns in the world. Uh, maybe that's a conversation we could open up. As far as introducing Evan, Evan, um, by his own admission to me, he's probably smoked the most 5-MeO-DMT in the world. And um, I, I, that's, that's the, the, I was wondering which of like the, the one-sentence taglines I could use to just give like biggest <laughs> impact for a sentence, Evan. I don't know if you'd use any others. Well, I mean, a, a life in general is, is pretty impossible to summarize in any amount of words. And, and um the degree to which a life path diverges from the sort of standard of society makes that even harder with a shorter number of words. But I guess you could say that um, my life has been oriented around exploring what it means to be a mind and what it means to be a mind which is in which is situated in some sort of phenomenal world. And um, you know, 
that could apply to almost anyone, but that's been a pretty explicit focus of my life for as long as I can remember. So that's sort of the, uh, the main thing about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautifully said. And Tyler has become uh, a close friend of mine though. We haven't met in, we haven't met in person. I hope that it changes before too long. Um, what else to say? Uh, someone else who I value interaction with and their perspective on the world immensely. And um, in a way that that grooves very much in the same flow, as I would say about um, each of you here. So it really is a pleasure. Uh, as for introducing myself, uh, I'm struck, Evan, by how much the general and the specific just seem to be playing games with each other in this way. It seems as though um, part of the maybe the conversation we could have here today, and certainly the the path that I'm that I'm uh, walking both unconsciously and consciously is one of understanding who I is and what I is doing and seeking to do that in a way that is more helpful than not. And that could be put in many other ways, but I suppose there's a certain sense in which if I look at things closely or maybe from a very great dif uh, distance, all of a sudden um, what I'm appearing at, what I'm peering at takes on a degree of um, complexity or it might differ from the norm of perception in such a way that makes, um, well, again, the general and the specific play a certain sort of dance with each other. Uh, we can look at some of the most quote unquote ordinary things in life and um, how remarkable they are is truly stunning. And so to relate to that preciousness and um, unicity of experience and its precariousness um, is something that seems deeply important. And so it's partly with that in mind that I, um, well, there's so many things worth talking about. Um, something about the distinction between the esoteric and the exoteric comes to mind just a little bit there and how we might relate to that dynamic in a way that is interesting. The word faithful came to mind. It seems like we are in the midst of stepping into the kind of um, global calamity or certain kind of um, chaotic swirl of, um, I want to say something like death, which I think is going to necessitate and does necessitate a more conscious response from more people um, with respect to how they relate to their own lives and their own death and their own treatment of others. And so it's perhaps from that angle as well that um, some of the more mystical ways perhaps more esoteric ways of relating to the world seem important, not so much to demystify 
depending on what we mean by that, but to um, make somehow more approachable to those who are desiring to approach them and to do so with others. And um, well, I had no plan of saying any of that and I'm sensing I should probably put a pin in myself and just stop it all. Um, just nice to be here with you really. Uh, I might just ask a question of each of you and um, that will be the only structure I, I would put forward. And then it's really just to go and, and see, see where we come to. I might begin with Tyler, just to share maybe what some of your, if you have any intentions coming into this conversation, if there, because I know we've had a number of conversations, obviously we spoke with Anderson the other week, we've had many conversations with Evan, and there is a certain more practical sense of topics for conversation and patterns of action, even real patterns we might be wanting to understand together, which can be of um, benefit not only to us here and our understanding, but also for those listening and also for various collaborations we may be a part of. And so it's in service to the coalition of, I think, many streams of inquiry and earnest interest to ultimately collaborate toward the good is <laughs> why I'm interested in doing any of this at all. So um, I seem to have launched myself off into space. Perhaps you can help bring a little bit more coherence to what's going on here and if i fail what happens then uh, it's over to anderson and then evan and if we all fail well we'll beautiful. have done half the podcast by then and so we won't have to worry too much more about what comes next exactly um each of us are each other's parachute perhaps there is um there's something that just before we began recording that Anderson said um, it had to do with the understanding a changing context for something like the sacred. Um, and and the, the end was, except for all the, the ethical problems. And I think we could probably append that to almost everything that we're interacting with now. Um, because whatever it is that's drawing people into conversation, uh, what has specifically drawn me into these realms has to do with the, the obviousness of uh, institutional failure, uh, a failure within my own life, uh, of being able to meet the continually changing requirements of what it is to, to be in, in Evan's um, particular interest, a conscious, aware mind, a human being, and what does it mean to be that? And I'm, I'm aware continuously that there is a spectrum of something like the profane to the mundane to the sacred. And anything that seems to generate prolonged interest and the ability to change uh, while holding on to something, which is what keeps you anchored to sets of patterns and ideas and ways of being uh, seems to belong into the sacred. And so right now I'm, I find myself in a conversation with, uh, people whom I respect uh, for different reasons. 
Um, and it has not necessarily a, a causal f- factor where I have looked at things that you've done and said, oh, well, that is now worthy of respect or a title that one holds. Uh, but it has more to do with my desire to bring that with me. Um, that each opportunity we have to speak with each other uh, has the chance for each of us to define what that is like and what comes of it. So I'm very interested in how it is that we maintain a sense of the sacred in conversation with each other and without abusing it, right? Without allowing it to overly influence our set of sensibilities, because it seems that Um, it seems quite powerful to be affected by the sacred. And uh, all right. So then how do you tie that to the pragmatic, right? That's, that's one of the things that I've noticed is um, to the extent that institutional failure is occurring and individual failure and kind of holographically distributed. um, This has to do with uh, a decoherence a, a de-unifying process of all the parts of the human, um, both the abstract and the concrete. And so you could look at something like NFTs or cryptocurrencies or decentralizing as a wild enthusiasm that has separated itself and, and now manifests as its own special interest in the world, you know, as a kind of a purely express zeitgeist or egregore or however you want to term it, um, which is just this, you know, attending to the, the phenomenon altogether and then having a fixed point in the external world that people can gather towards. So with that existing, how can you interrelate it with the other also holographically expressed aspects of right relationship uh, or the organs of culture um, and then bring all of those things into coherent conversation. So for instance, my child is now knock- knocking at the door uh, of this room and he has some interest that I have to now discover and uh, reject or intertwine. And what is that same thing doing in the whole conversational space? Oh, forgive me. It's interesting <clears throat> thinking about um sort of being here in a sense and and, uh, the relationship to the sacred. There's a thing that I reflect on quite often uh, in general, and it it comes up very frequently when I'm in these these sorts of conversations that have become kind of increasingly frequent for me in the last couple or few years, Um, which is I'm struck very often by, in a sense, the profound weirdness of the situation in which I find myself. Uh, So there is, I find very often like a, there is a funny disjoint in some sense between I I find my conscious actions and where I end up, which is to say that I often can't quite trace what the, you know, the conscious line was that I took to get into a situation, except that it is reflective in some way of what I wanted. And of course, it's easy to get supernatural about that. And I try to hold that, you know, uh, lightly at at any rate. But, um, but the reason that I I bring this up is that I think that you know, when, when we talk about sort of the sacred and we talk about the, um, 
the profane, we're really talking about, you know, uh, sort of ends of the space that is the numinous. And I, I think that there is sort of an un, unappreciated third point in that space, which is the weird. Uh, and the weird to me, this the, the general weirding of things actually strikes me as being one of the sort of dominant forces in what's going on sort of socially and at large, right? Things are getting profoundly, profoundly weird. I, and I mean, you know, there are a bunch of sort of like termination shock barriers that the culture seems to pass through. Like every now and then you get a, <clears throat> you get a sense of how strange things are when you realize that like, I don't know, Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart are doing a cooking show together or something, and, right? And this expresses itself sort of generally within the consciousness as people going like, I think maybe we're in a simulation or something of this kind, right? So there's like this social level of the weirdingness, you know, um, you know, uh, what McKenna, I guess, would have referred to as like increased novelty, et cetera, et cetera. But I find that it's actually quite useful just on the individual level, like a recognition of, of the weird. So anytime I step back and I think to myself, like, okay, so this is what's happening right now. Like, this is where I am. And often there is, there's a funny double space it is simultaneously like aligned with things that i'm interested in things that i want but at the same time is is discontinuous or something um i find that i have this experience a great deal in these conversations and what this often points to um you know when i'm contemplating it uh is the idea that although there is in fact a sort of a you know a, a swirling gyre of chaos um, at the sort of visible level, uh, that it seems as though there are sort of organizing structures uh, underneath that, that are much more difficult to pick up. And those things very often, it seems to me, are operating socially. And I suspect operating socially in a way that really um, consciously we're not fully picking up on. But you get this idea that there's like a, a spontaneous concrescence of, you know, community ties and stuff happening. And I think lots of people have mentioned this, right? That as the ability, you know, for us to sort of network together in this way has increased, um, it seems as though there are structures sort of precipitating out at a level that we're not aware of. Um, and obviously there are lots of powers that would love to um, strap a harness onto that. <clears throat> um, not, not least the same powers that have decided that they would like to own the metaverse apparently. Um, my sneaking suspicion is that they will fail miserably at doing so um, because uh, um, large corporations and totalitarian governments are piss poor magicians in my experience. But, um, you know, the, this idea that there, you know, that there is something somehow sort of like spontaneously organizing itself in this way is something that's very often foremost, foremost of my thoughts when I come on these things. I mean, you never know where they're going to go for one thing. And, and there is a profound weirding to that. Um, but also, uh, you know, when you step back from it, it does seem as though there's in, in some way inexplicably like an underlying structure. And it's, it's hard for me to express this in any way, as, as Evan pointed out. Um, it sometimes pisses me off that words are the only thing that I have in my expressive arsenal. Like, this is not a good medium for me to produce an oil painting in. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I like weirding. Um, I don't, are you familiar with the Dune novel or Herbert Frank? Oh, oh yes, very much. The, the weirding way, yeah. So there's a, mm. there's something interesting there for sure. Um, yeah, because it it has something you know that that double space or that recognition of being outside oneself 
or or in a suddenly different landscape um it certainly instigates different processes within us in order to to meet that thing right so you, mm. when you when you recognize an anomaly you then you have to do some characterization process right and you have to determine if it's harmful or if it's positive so you start to establish some valence for it right and then that this is your relevance realization process where you're you're starting to try to connect it with patterns that you know in the past and and uh, understand and situate yourself within it um yeah and so in in that landscape of utter chaos what is it that guides you right because in in the in the landscape where you have people increasingly attempting to control it from the top down attempting to establish one particular signal as the predominant manner in which how one solves the problem the partial antithesis to that is that double space it's the weirding way it's that recognition of it okay well well maybe it's more uh that i i shy away from these these dominant themes that someone from the top or from some charismatic voice is saying it for sure it has to be and continue to maintain attendance to that double space right because that is in fact the landscape of novelty where, where uh, if there is going to be some recognition of a of a um, continual trend that establishes itself as an organ of culture um, then it will be from outside of that although there's still difficulty in that because um, as many people are becoming increasingly convinced um, those pre-established signals may be the already developed organ now i think you can you can just assume that is the case and that what you have is simultaneously developing cultural bodies and that some will only persist so far so the the, the failure um, of the metaverse controlled by facebook is uh is you know foretold right um what is the thing that will surpass it or survive it or be birthed from it and that that's an, another part of what it is to to discuss the sacred i think um, certainly anything associated with bringing new life into this world should be yeah, I'm wondering, um, Evan, if if it would be worthwhile, and I'm I notice I'm curious to hear you expand on this, but it's it's again it's it's a, it's a challenge here for me to speak this because I know there's so much uh, brilliant depth to your your perspective and what you have to offer. But let's say one of your endeavors is um, somewhat housed under the term the bridge um so what does the bridge mean philosophically and and how does that perhaps relate to what's beginning to presence here is it a relevant link to make it certainly can be so um I didn't name the project myself. That was uh, that was Peter Lindbergh's wonderful coinage, which I was happy to adopt at his suggestion when I did the first session over at the Stoa. But it is a pretty apt title for one of my projects. And so the things being bridged are roughly the sort of scientific, rational perspective and the more esoteric, mystical perspective. Um, now, um, a bridge does not mean a unification right? Uh, things being bridged still have their distinct nature. Um, so that's important to mention, but I, I kind of think of this in terms of a pretty large scale sweep of history. You know, you could look at, at the main 
intellectual endeavor of the past several hundred years being um, an effort collectively to sort of pin down the, you know, invariant and regular um, patterns, uh, which seem to unfold in intersubjective experience, right? Now, we can go ahead and take the hypothesis that there's such a thing as objective reality, which seems like a decent hypothesis to take, but all we can really show is that we have some sort of intersubjective experience and that there exists some sort of regularities in the transition from moment to moment in that experience. And so um, we've come up with a language, a language of, um, you know, specifically formal languages, a set of formal languages and their interrelationships that we might call math um, that we use to describe these regularities. Um, and in doing so, we've, we've been really quite tightly focused on this as, as uh, at least as an intellectual class in society for the past several hundred years. And this has resulted in a, uh, you know, compared to the historical norm, a sort of uh, defocusing, a de-emphasis um, on the, the nature of what it is to be a conscious mind, the nature of subjectivity, as opposed to intersubjectivity or this hypothetical objectivity, right? So, um, the bridge is basically an attempt to look at the traditions that we've received from the past. And, you know, my own um, experience in this is pretty broad and varied. I've focused in a lot on things like Vajrayana Buddhism, things like uh, the fourth way, Gurdjieff work, um, uh, things like yoga. I grew up with an Iyengar yogi as a mother. So that you know, um, is a pretty big influence on me as well. And of course, the ancient Greek and Roman philosophers. Um, special place in my heart for Parmenides in particular. And so I'm looking at the sort of commonalities between these traditions, um, the same way that we started out with uh, sciences of, you know, biology and chemistry and physics, and, you know, the list goes on. And, and, and we, we continue to be able to unify these, we continue to be able to reduce the total number of moving parts, uh, the total number of epicycles, we, we, continue to get closer to a unified view of the sort of transition functions that explain the transitions from moment to moment in intersubjective or objective reality. And, you know, there, there exist uh, thousand plus, you know, uh, four, 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 year old lineages, which were, you know, according to me, at least uh, a similarly, um, you know, good faith and disciplined ex uh, effort by, by extremely capable people to, um, come together and find the core and explain to each other what was going on with subjective reality and, um, you know, being a mind. And so for me, I find both of these projects extremely fascinating. And I, and I find that, you know, what people refer to as the meta crisis or uh, uh, John Vervegi refers to as the meaning crisis, all of these interlocking issues that people in our society are experiencing as well as society as a whole, insofar as you can say society has an experience, seems to be experiencing, um, seems to be not entirely, but, but I'd say mainly a sort of downstream consequence of this hyper-focus on discovering the nature of the sort of shared reality of physical objects and physical forces that most of our intellectual effort has gone to over the past few hundred years. And so we've sort of left by the wayside, the sort of, you could call them the spiritual sciences or, you know, whatever you want to call that, that whole ball of wax. But um, this is not really a set of fields that 
promising, intelligent, capable young people are encouraged to go into. You know, growing up as a fairly high achieving young student, uh, everybody would have looked askance at someone if they said, oh, I want to go be a monk. I want to go be a priest. I want to go be a rabbi like this. You, you basically would have been laughed out of campus, right? Um, no, you're supposed to want to be a, a physicist or a, a doctor, or a researcher, a biologist, you know, a computer scientist, right? Well, this is the sort of divide that that the bridge is is well attempting to bridge, right? Is the sense that that one the sense that these are two fully separate magisteria. I think that that it's a little bit more interesting and complex than that. Um, and secondly, the idea that we should privilege the sort of exact and objective sciences as the the highest form of in intellectual inquiry. I think this is basically wrong, and that you know sort of equal consideration should be given to those who are pursuing, um, you know, an honest inquiry of what it means to be a mind and how consciousness um, operates. And, you know, from the subjective perspective, from the perspective of being the sort of uh, entity which has experiences, not just the sort of entity which can measure phenomena that are objectively measurable. Um, so this is the sort of thrust of, of my, you know, my project, and I, I keep coming back to some of the roots of the Western tradition, actually, as an interesting um, way of unifying this. And so I mentioned my particular love for Parmenides. He's an incredibly fascinating figure because he is credited as the father of logic and, and Western rationality. And yet all we have left of his actual writings are fragments of an incantatory poem where he is taken to the underworld by the goddess of death herself and given a sort of initiation. The word aporia comes up in this poem quite a lot. Aporia, A, without emporia, passage or path, right? Socrates would later um, use this word. And so this sense of being in the midst of a deeply confusing situation where the only thing you know is how lost you are, right? Like the recognition of aporia as the first step to being able to do anything. Well, that seems to be basically where we're at, at the societal and collective level. And so, you know, I, I find it especially fascinating that, you know, um, Parmenides was not just or even primarily a philosopher. The tradition he was a part of um, was, was called the Yatromantis tradition, which means priest healer, essentially. And they practice something called incubation. Um, where you would go into a cave or other extremely dark space and lie motionless for hours or days or even weeks until you received visions. Now, we know from more modern studies from the scientific side, the Taoists do this sort of thing, too. They call it a darkroom retreat. And this results in, um, after a certain number of days, uh, enhanced production of DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and um, and monoamine oxidase inhibitor alkaloids within the brain itself. And so it leads to essentially an endogenous ayahuasca experience. So the very root of the Western tradition of logic and rationality was a guy who went and hung out in caves until he started tripping. And this is where he got his info, basically. So, you know, we're sort of back to square one as a society. We're in a place of pathlessness, a place of utter confusion. And Parmenides emphasizes the importance of this particular capacity called metis, right? Um, Aristotle would go on to refer to something similar with the word phrenesis. There was a bit of a linguistic shift there, but I like the word metis better because of its connection with the tightness of wisdom, Zeus's first wife. And so that's the sort of orientation of my project right now is um, investigating metis per se and how do we embody metis? How do we communicate and transmit um, 
the the essence of Metis to others who might be interested in this. And so this is sort of my my fundamental orientation at this point. So there were a bunch of things that jumped out to me there, but um, so first off, it's always interesting to see where people land on the Parmenides Heraclitus cage match. Um, uh, and um, so I want to talk about that at greater length at some point. Uh, also, of course, shades of, of Pythagoras and, uh, and the Thunderstone rite, right? And the frankly, massively underappreciated sort of shamanic roots of most of the philosophic tradition in the West, uh, all of which got sort of scattered to the winds under the onslaught of uh, analytic um, uh, uh, analytic technique when it should have maybe been <clears throat> integrated. Um, but uh, yeah, so there were a few things that jumped out there. I mean, one thing that really spoke to me, it's interesting, you know, the when you talk about sort of the uh, attempting to overcome the idea that that these two domains are like non-overlapping magisteria, right? And and attempting to get back to some earlier vision, the you know there there are of course real you know scientific and philosophical problems that have been raised, right? Such that we kind of can't we can't just go back. We sort of have to go forward and, and through. Um, however, one of the things that's really struck me, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, like in, in, in the university and campus culture particularly, is the extent to which this stuff uh, has really uh, resurged um, in, the, uh, in the interest set. So it, it's very often not the case, actually, I find that students are necessarily attracted into like, you know, the hard, hard sciences per se. Very often, actually, I see and this in part might be because of what I teach, but uh, I see lots and lots of students being attracted into this. So a thing that I found myself saying quite a bit and often in conferences and stuff is like between psychedelics, role-playing games, uh, um, you know, sort of um, mysticism, Jungianism, uh, et cetera, uh, I find myself in this jarring space where I'm on the winning side of a cultural argument, uh, which I'm not used to. And the, there has been this, this broad sweep, right? I mean, some of this is like grounded out in, you know, a little bit of mech mindfulness, which hopefully is a Trojan horse for something a little bit deeper, frankly. Uh, but the point is that there is, in fact, a substantial interest, it seems to me now, academically in exploring so many of these subjects, right? Consciousness is a subject that's, you know, really on the table. Um, sophiology, the study of wisdom, is something that's really actually on the table. Um, and of course, lots and lots of students being interested in sort of, you know, the psychedelic and very often not just in its sort of, you know, uh, hallucinatory aspect, you know, but, but really in that like mind revealing, mind manifesting, you know, and as a way of exploring what, what mind is. Um, so, so it's interesting. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is <clears throat> given that your, your project is a, is a bridge, um, that does license you to refer to yourself as Pontifex, which I encourage you to take full advantage of if you can. Any advantage to refer to yourself as Pontifex in the realm of bridge building, you should always seize, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I appreciate mm. that. And I do, I do take your, your meaning there. I think it's, it's fascinating because this is a marked shift in culture. So, you know, when I was 19 years old, I dropped out of college because I was, I tried majoring in philosophy and classics. I had a bit of a math major going, which was all right. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then uh, the religion department. And 
unfortunately, at that time, at a, a, a pretty high quality state school in the United States, um, it was simply not the case that the level of interdisciplinary study um, that I was interested in was available to undergraduates. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I, I'm happy to see from the outside and hear about from people who are on the inside of the academy that these changes are happening, that I also appear to be on the rising tide side of a particular cultural movement. This is in some sense gratifying, although, um, you know, I, I am quite wary of the, um, the institutional incentives at play in academia and the, um, the particular organizational styles. We could look at trends of the ratio of administration um, employees to teaching faculty. We could look at research budget allocations. We could look at a lot of other sort of indicators. And so, you know, I'm currently occupying a position where I, I, I am optimistic that the academy is not on its deathbed, but if I were forced to place a bet on it, I would probably bet that the academy writ large loses its uh, sense of being a center of cultural relevance within the next hundred years, pretty irrecoverably. Well, I would be shocked if it took that long. I mean, the university, you know, whatever, it's a thousand year old institution, but it hasn't been what it now is really since the GI Bill. Uh, you know, that's more or less what brings it in. And the idea that there is some, you know, uh, automatic ladder of socioeconomic, you know, increase that comes about with, you know, it's diluted the whole thing and saddled everybody with debt that, you know, <clears throat> hopefully the university doesn't watch this, but the whole thing's a shit show and a dinosaur. And the sooner that it, you know, dies back down to about 10% of its scale and refines its spiritual values, the better. However, exactly. and um, what you just said to the spiritual values part, because that transition yeah. you're speaking of, I mean, the university has it, had its origin as a training ground for spiritual practitioners, and that was lost at some point along the way. And I would love to see an, you know, an, an organization that looked something like in between, say, a Tibetan monastery and a Western university. So we have the sciences and sociology and all this kind of thing, but we also have that grounding in the, the sacred, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird because the framing we just came at this with puts me as an insider at the university, which I'm I'm really not used to thinking of myself as. I'm I'm a high school dropout who avoided higher education for years and years. And when asked, you know, like, well, if you were going to go to school, what would you do? The only answer I could ever come up with was neurotheology, which was not a thing. And so, you know, uh, and frankly, I was lucky insofar as when I decided to go through, you know, with an eye towards some degree of professional accreditation, uh, uh, you know, the two words, John Verveke is the answer. Uh, and having sort of, I had known John from way back, but having sort of stumbled into that and gotten into cognitive science and cognitive science at the University of Toronto, frankly, is not the same thing as cognitive science at other universities. Um, you know, there is something profoundly broader and stranger uh, happening at U of T. So, you know, I was lucky, basically. Between that and the fact that they had a Jungian minor and a, uh, you know, a, um, a Buddhist psychology and mental health program, you know, I was, I was in interdisciplinary heaven um, and have now found myself within that system, frankly, to my enormous surprise. Um, and um, maybe the shaming of my 17-year-old self, who I suspect would like to smack me upside the head. But anyway, um, be that as it may, yeah, the, you know, the university as a sort of a tandem social organization alongside the monastic system was, you know, a system we had going for a long time. You know, they were sort of both repositories of, of learning and, you know, held over to a great extent through, you know, the dark ages, such as they were. Uh, 
And then of course the, the reformation rolls in and all of a sudden everybody realizes that you can sack the monasteries and take their gold. And, you know, half of that stuff falls off the map. University preserves what it can, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't really keep many of those traditions and sort of, you know, techniques and stuff. Um, it would be nice to see an evolution of that system towards, um, as, as I sometimes put it, a kind of Castalian ideal, right? So, you know, a glass bead game, right? Um, uh, towards a kind of Castalian ideal where, you know, yeah, we divorced the pursuit of knowledge from primary economic incentives, but in a way that still rendered sort of, you know, meaningful interplay and didn't just let it spiral off into, you know, um, abstraction and nonsense. Not that abstraction is necessarily nonsense, it certainly isn't, but, um, you know, yeah, I would love to see a system. I have sort of assumed that that is going to occur long, long after I'm dead, but I would be happy to see at least, you know, whatever, some of the, the rails get laid out um, before I go. Um, <clears throat> I mean, a dark age would go a long way in that direction and we seem to be headed there. So uh, that's, you know, positive. Anyway. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So laying some rails there. Is that what you said? Yeah. Laying the way a little bit. Hmm. So all right. I'm gonna see if I can do a bit of a transition to presencing the wonderful world of Bored Ape Yacht Club, which I did raise to Anderson and Tyler in our last conversation. And Evan, I see you Googling away there, Bored Ape. Yep, that's definitely the right thing to do. You'll essentially get the full mimetic hit of what I mean just by seeing an image of one of the Bored Apes. So I encourage those listening, if you don't aren't, aren't aware of this, just to whip out your phone or give it a quick Google. So for those of you not doing that, Bored Ape Yacht Club is effectively a series of 10,000 NFTs, basically um, uh, JPEGs with receipts, as I've heard them described, um, so that there's only one unique version of each that exists on the blockchain. In this case, Ethereum and on OpenSea as the exchange. And they were so so were to be under, uh, understanding created by a group of artists, but they're essentially something like a modular set of images. Some apes look very similar. Others look a little bit different, but they roughly all have the same shape. Some are more rare than others. And in a very short space of time, they went from being worth or at least sold initially for just a few hundred dollars to um, in some cases, the more rare ones, several million just a few weeks to a few months later, and some that are close to that price and people refuse to sell them because they supposedly have other kinds of value. Now, they very much do have a certain kind of value. Uh, at least they can get you into um, the club. They can get you into a party. They can network you with a whole bunch of other people who have decided that it's worthwhile to have one of these pictures. Um, and this is just the beginning of, you know, a lot to come. And there are many more um, series of NFTs, many of which, of course, don't have any value. And so there's something of 
an aggregation of attention and social interest. And I'm going to use community in quotation marks here um, because there is a common unity, i.e. we're going to decide that these particular images are valuable and that the club and the place to be cool and maybe the place to play a little Ponzi game in the meantime while we're being cool with each other is and that's that maybe there's a bit of money laundering whatever we get to rub shoulders with celebrities there's some weird social stuff happening okay but community in brackets because the 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 wise or the roots of this particular community don't um, appear to me at least to uh, stretch well deep into the wellspring of wisdom in terms of um, intentionality toward uh, some sort of right participation in the ecosystem or um, any sense that there it's always basically all in the name these and and it's it's self-effacing in this way these are essentially bored crypto millionaire types who are wealthy enough to have yachts, but otherwise have, have a, there's a dearth of meaning in their lives. In that sense, they're bored apes. And it seems to be a very powerful meme from that perspective, because it speaks to this moment in many ways that we're talking about um, in the context now in presencing, in presencing NFTs and Web3 as a context of an overflow of resources um, caused by something like the technological toppling of, or at least the, the perturbation of the old world. There's a lot spilling over and there's new possibilities as a result. So in the context of um, what we seem to be presencing here, which is an interest in something like gathering together um, in some with, with some interesting mindset toward what my friend Lawrence Curry Clark um, mentioned to me in conversation. I think I mentioned it to you guys as well as a pre-institution, a pre-institution. Um, Anderson, not convinced we'll see it before having another dark age, but it would be nice to see some railroad railroads laid down. Something like this. The question is, um, is it possible to orient or to interact with the immense overflow of um, potential resources that seemingly want to cluster around uh, various sorts of memes to um, resource a distributed, say, collective network, series of networks of people in some form of creative collaboration to to what I mean, I'm now seeking to, um, you know, sum up what we might say about the uh, somewhere in between a, a monastery and a university. That's just part of it. I think um, it looks to me like what's necessary would also ask of us something that's perhaps even more general in that to the extent there is a breakdown of systems in society then something even more resilient when it comes to um, powerful action in the world might be required, um, i.e. eventually places to live that are not, uh, you know, burying their heads in the sand about even potential for things like um, 
men with guns and those in positions of power to orient them, to control them. Um, basically, what I'm pointing to is that um, it, there seems to be this, it, it seems to be important to take <laughs> so much into account. Do you know what I mean? And um, when I, when I look, for instance, at the kinds of people who might cluster around mimetic opportunity, maybe in the case of NFTs, cryptocurrency, or what have you, who have as primary motivation, something like some combination of power, reputation, security, from a basis of coming from a, a deep basis of insecurity, and in some sense, ungroundedness with respect to trust in the worthwhileness of life or something like this, um, maybe not feeling in their soul something worth dying for, that there is something quite dangerous about that scramble. But nevertheless, it is a scramble that's wanting to take powerful steps in the world and one that's wanting to maximize through its own network of collaboration its, its agency, but might not be doing so from a basis that's that it in fact has engaged in something like whether we want to say um, some sort of uh, deeply connective experience, um, a deeply connective commitment to, in my language, I want to say something like loving transformation, but, um, and I also seem to like terms like life affirming, but I appreciate there's lots that life must affirm in order to affirm itself, right? There's transcendence and intelligence and a whole bunch of things so that's a that's a lot there i've presence but you see what i'm trying to get at um maybe i'll stop there it looks like anderson you're nodding yeah so since we you know since we got together the first time and discussed nfts and was <clears throat> introduced to the board ape yacht club and a bunch of the things around it i've done you know quite a lot of sort of reading around it and quite a lot of you know sort of slow walking contemplation, you know, trying to get some sense of what's going on there. And simultaneously, obviously trying to get some sense of, you know, where the application is, like what's the utility uh, of it above and beyond just being sort of a, um, uh, a, a conventionalized trading game, like the games that were sort of conjured out of the ether by um, uh, amphetamine addicts in San Francisco in the 60s when they spontaneously developed economies of blue stones in the park. Um, you know, so I thought about this and I decided after a while, and I'm completely open to somebody knocking this interpretation apart. In fact, I sort of hope you do. Uh, but I decided after a while that what they are is just trading. They're just trading cards, <laughs> which reduces them in a, in a way. They're artificially scarce uh, trading cards, which have almost no utility um, and a very low degree of novelty. But because they have some amount of novelty and because they're technologically novel, some people are going to hitch onto them and the artificial scarcity, right? We've, we've put a lot of energy into these sort of artificially scarce uh, new digital currencies. Now, never mind that I have this thinking suspicion that a lot of people invested in this space are gonna get their comeuppance when somebody really actually breaks through quantum supremacy. And it turns out that all of their 
you know, uh, cryptography falls to bits and none of this stuff is protected at all. Uh, and there are of course already large heists going on in anticipation of the computing technologies a decade hence so that they can crack into that stuff. But leaving that aside for a second, you know, as it stands, you know, it, it's trading cards. That's what it is. And trading cards are subject to the same kinds of crazes, right? You know, you, you could get a, a very fair market price in real goods for like a mint condition Mickey Mantle card or something of this kind, right? Or a decent Pokemon card or a really good Magic the Gathering card. Like these things have, you know, some real market value. People will pay for them. Now, they don't seem to even have the same degree of like um, hedonic utility as say like a POG which at least was part of a game or a magic card or a Pokemon card, which at least you could play game with. Like you can't play games with these apes. There is no arena in which you can take the apes to make them yacht at each other or something. So, you know, it that seems will like be there's the metaverse a... to come. Oh yes. I assume so. So, you know, it seems as though these are like the first forays into trying something on for size. Right. And, you know, the, the novelty of the technology alone is spurring it, but I don't see that having, frankly, a lot of utility. You can take every damn JPEG in the world and stick a crypto chain on it and call it valuable, but that doesn't actually make it valuable. And pretty quickly, right, as the, you know, the rate of authenticity nosedives under mechanical reproduction, that all falls apart. But the real question is, okay, but what can you do with it? Like, what can you do with it that's actually interesting? Right? What could you do with it where you could somehow apply that same technology to something that has actual utility and actual value in some meaningful way? Now, some of that's a quibble, right? Because like, what's actual value? At some level, you could make the argument that if we're talking about something that's sort of life supporting, the only actual value is value that grounds out in sort of the biological, right? Food. <laughs> if it doesn't ground out in a food, you've missed the point. And even gold is just a, you know, a useful ductile abstraction, um, which allows you to trade around grain, because if you have all the gold and none of the grain, you're screwed. Um, but what could we actually do with this? And so I, I kind of kicked the can around on a few things. One thing that occurred to me, and I couldn't, again, I couldn't tell whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, but I thought it would be extremely interesting to be able to apply this kind of technology to um, like highly individualized utterances as a way of finalizing attribution and ownership over intellectual ideas. This is something that we have you know, moved towards in our culture, right? Citation, attribution, et cetera. And in academia, it's the currency of the realm, right? Getting, getting people to like cite your papers is it's what it's all about. It's not about the paychecks. It's about people citing your ideas. That is the big trade, right? But of course, if you could nail that down to sort of individual ideas and have those be in some sense like individualized and attributable and non-fungible and tradable and whatever. Um, but as soon as I had that thought, I thought, wait, maybe that's actually really, really bad. <laughs> like maybe, maybe we would be better off sliding back in the direction of the culture in which every good book was just attributed to some previous sage or labeled anonymous. And we had sort of an open exchange. But anyway, this is what I was thinking about trading cards. And what I'm really interested in is either somebody knocking that apart and I encourage people to do so, or some idea you have about like the alternate deployment of this technology in a way that actually preserves like utility, really taps into some kind of actual value. So, yeah, so I was one... gonna... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. 
So one obvious area of utility that some people are working on, um, I'm thinking particularly of the Materium project that Vinay is uh, working with, um, is using the idea of NFTs to provide traceability for physical assets, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they're starting out with like art objects, gold bullion, real estate, things where a chain of custody might be in dispute might be really mm -hmm. mattering. But what I'm personally excited about is so, you know, like I... I personally do eat meat and I also personally care about where my food comes from. Right. And I've oh. seen any number of news stories recently um, involving scandals where some place was selling supposedly pasture raised grass fed beef that had, you know, the cows had a good life. And it turns out, no, this was just from some industrial slaughterhouse. They were just pocketing right. the difference. Right. Well, if you had traceability of the cow, the cow had an NFT assigned to it. And so it had to get scanned, you know, at each individual place that it, that it and parts of it went to, then you'd, you'd have the ability to verify that same thing with whether a given piece of seafood actually was sustainably fished or whether it was from some, you know, farm or some, you know, uh, non-sustainable operation, that sort of thing. So, and this does connect, you know, you made me think of this when you spoke of how value is in some sense, ultimately grounded biologically in the sense of food. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, I'll turn it over to you, Tyler, real quick, but, um, one, one other thought I had is, is, um, sort of agreeing with you, Anderson, and that, they're, the trading card analogy is pretty strong. And so uh, NFTs are just a new technology for enabling um, this sort of thing. We've had this sort of thing, artificial scarcity schemes for uh, as far as I can tell, as long as there's been civilization. And so I look at this from a sort of uh, 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 30,000 foot view. And I say, well, when you have a society that is going crazy over assets with no link to a fundamental biological value, except perhaps a very tenuous link to, you know, sexual mate selection value or something like this, then you're essentially looking at a society whose currency distribution, whose value distribution is extremely unbalanced and, and, and fucked. Right. So the fact that we have enough people out there to support a thriving ecosystem and, yacht club apes um is a kind of damning indictment of our society and so that that's my take on that and i'll pass it over to you tyler so Scott, i, I love the idea oh sorry i just i love the idea of the um butcher's blockchain uh this is a, that's a very good like practical utility and on the other side i was just going to say quick that um yeah, I mean, the issue of this is, of course, the general abstraction of our economic systems, right? This is one extra layer of abstraction of artificial scarcity. It's not fundamentally different than a bunch of zeros floating through computers that have no real bearing. You know, it's, it's not clear to me that Jeff Bezos himself has any understanding of what his wealth is or means or connects to the world in any way whatsoever, right? It's just, it's just like more zeros uh, in some sense. And you know, that, that's the problem, of course, that's hit, you know, a, a lot of us. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, no, no, I didn't. I, and I was, I was going to take an, an attempt at knocking it down or uh, take a stab at it or, you know, whatever particularly violent metaphor you want to use it. But you already began in the very act, because anytime someone uses the word just, I read uh, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when I was fairly young, and he attacks that word just because they, they used it to attack him. And um, I think... I think you, I mean, you immediately unpacked it and you said, well, it's, maybe it's not just, and you started to expound upon what it could be otherwise. And, and so if we just take that further, first taking a look at the use of the word just in the realm of objectification, because what you're attempting to do there is hold uh, content the same in a different context, 
right? And, and that is, in fact, moving towards, I think, the more spiritual dimension of where the subjective has continuity of contact with ultimate realms, right? And that what we're looking for is a, 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 an opportunity to um, assign value in these different landscapes, different contexts. So uh, an NFT is just an NFT, except for when it is used to be a trading card game or when it is used to assign uh, a location to a, a block of meat or whatever, right? Um, and that if we if we do in fact find a value for an ultimate value, what we're trying to do is find its power. We're trying to find its capacity to affect some change in the world. And that in, this is in fact the root of all of our problems because as we gain more and more knowledge and more and more capacity, we have the ability to do more and more harm with, with ignorance, in fact, as you were just pointing out with Bezos. Um, the accrual of power and capacity at some point goes far beyond your own initial conditions of understanding. And you, you begin having all these externalities which are fundamentally harmful to and disruptive to the interlocking web of life and activity on this globe. And so there's a weird paradox here that I'm noticing with regards to these non-overlapping magisteria in the Gouldian sense, but with you know, some bridge between them, where our, our objective scientific capacities have increased over time by using reduction to establish tools which give us power to affect change in the world. And yet when we look at complex webs of life, it is less and less a reduction in epicycles and more and more an accretion of them, right? So when I, when I actually zoom into any given uh, aspect of life, it seems to just be full of epicycles of organisms interacting on each other as selective pressure mechanisms with regards to resourcing um, and, and you know, destruction and or maintenance of particular structures. Um, and that if there's anything that needs to occur right now, it, it seems to be related to and this is where John's work, I think, is so important, developing the wisdom, which I see now as the technique associated with the use of each tool that our powerful scientific reductionism has been able to produce. Because you can see a hammer, but without knowing how to use that hammer well in any given circumstance, it can be anything, right? The tool can be anything. And, um, and that includes uh, very harmful things. So it can be used to murder or it can be used to build a house. And so I, I think there isn't really any way to utilize NFTs uh, irrespective of the subjective context, right? That the only people who will be able to utilize NFTs properly and that this will constitute the distinction between these developing cultural organisms. Um, you will you have the, the, the sameness of content, but the different context will be the individuals handling, comprehending the value will be those who have internally the distinctions and capacities and wisdom necessary to utilize them. And so you have to have this educational uh, component, which gives us a chance to expand and explore and then and build the techniques needed to, to coincide with this ever increasing exponential capacity with the tools themselves. And then if those things don't go hand in hand, we get ultimate destruction. Um, and I, I, I think that's uh, probably an inevitability in certain circumstances, but the degree to which that cascades throughout all of these interconnected complex systems of life, that, uh, that is certainly something we can't um, prophesy completely about. 
but we would like to inure ourselves to it somehow. And um, yeah, so those are some of the thoughts I was thinking as you guys were speaking on that. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Um, the, yeah, I, I sort of, I was, I, maybe I was a little too glib. I was trying to take a stab in that direction in which the, the question is, for me is almost always like, what can we do with this? Right. And so as I was rolling it around in my head and I was asking myself, you know, like, okay, board, board ape yacht club, what can I do with this? Like what, what, you know, what can I do with it? And of course, you know, it's always possible sort of at the, you know, the like penumbra of, of effort to do something that is more, you know, there's no reason you couldn't take it and treat it as a sacred object. Right. <laughs> you know, given, given that kind of like, um, uh, self-reflective component that Tim was pointing at at the outset, right? It's like all in the title. It's like, yes, if you wanted to treat it as an element of the sacred, right? These like minor distinctions between bored yacht apes, right? There probably is a spiritual focus in there. You could treat it like an icon or something in that way, right? Um, and if you really wanted to dig into it, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the point that I always make. It's, it's not that some things are archetypal and others aren't. Uh, it's all archetypal. It's just a matter of, you know, seeing the way in which it's, it's archetypal, right? That's a, it's a shift in your interpretive mindset, not a function of the, the content, really. So yeah, yeah, I get, I get all that. I guess, yeah, what I was sort of stabbing towards was like, yeah, you're right, I am using a lot of violent metaphors. Okay, what I was reaching towards with open embrace was um, this question of like, okay, what they've done with it thus far is interesting. I see potential in it. Um, it's current formulation. I'm like, well, I'm just not that interested in trading cards anymore. But what if I was going to do something with it, I suppose, what, what, what are the things that we could do? Like, what's the possibility space around it? So that's sort of where I was uh, landing in it around it. And well, let me just throw of, this in. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Keep, keep, yeah. No, 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 I, I was, go, last, go. When last we spoke, yeah, when last we spoke, the idea that, that I seem to be centered around is, is not necessarily the attribution aspect. But the ability to accrue that that expressed enthusiasm in the culture for, so I mean you're right about pointing out the um, the, the the thin slice of novelty attached to it, right? Yeah. But I think in this realm of everything uh, always being produced as novel, right? It like uh, so. Okay, let me just bring in this piece too. Um, working with Eric Weinstein and his portal group it, and trying to it, we, what. Well, aside from his motivations, but one of the things he always spoke about was what, how he termed it, uh, the twin nuclei problem. And this has to do with, again, scientific materialism and its re reduced capacity to, to get down to the bottom of things and then enact some really powerful effective change on it. And so now with our knowledge of the inside of the cell and with our knowledge of the inside of the nucleus of the atom, we have this twin capacity to destroy absolutely everything. We're under the effects of the pandemic right now, which is potentially associated with that phenomenon. And we've for many decades now been under the potential catastrophic collapse of nuclear proliferation. Um, yeah. uh, so I would always argue with him that his formulation was incomplete. And I think it was incomplete perhaps um, by design, but there's a third nuclei, which is the mind of man, which is understanding deeply uh, the subjective and conscious experience. And when we do understand that, we can, we can manage the patterns that we see to affect change in the world in the same way that we could with, with an intensified tool. 
right? Mm -hmm. And that, that these psychotechnologies, to use John's term, uh, when understood and applied, give you the opportunity to make something like the Board Ape Yacht Club, wherein you are exacting these very old uh, mechanisms in the mind of maintaining attention to the rare, right? And just putting it in a new context. And then, you know, people play that game out. But so expressing all of that outwards, how do you take the total enthusiastic space for the novel, right? And then map onto it the wise ways of using it. And I think that what you're looking at there is using the enthusiasm as a pool or a resource, and then the NFT as an attractor to something of value, right? So it's the signal that you're trying to use, or at least you're trying to exact to direct attention to something of value. And that something of value seems to be, for me anyways, is the ability to wisely converse with each other such that we land on some contextually relevant subjective sense of how to become wise, right? How to simultaneously like co-develop these techniques to use with the tools. And so if we can utilize NFTs to assign attention to the value of that process, so if we can get people to come together in conversations they would not ordinarily happen without all of that enthusiastic space, you know, congealing in attention on that NFT, maybe that's something we can do. Like we can, we can issue a, a rare event rather than just a rare token, right? Beautifully said, beautifully articulated. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I think that's an, I think that's an important piece. Um, I would tie this together and again, putting this forward for retort, but um, I would tie this together with uh, potential strategies that would seek to siphon resources from the previous structure. So the language of game A and game B is maybe a bit helpful here, particularly in the context of trading cards, where people might just be doing it back and forth, maybe for, in some sense, playing a game that's become so abstracted from any return of real value to in a sense of grain although of course they could just sell that collectible to buy grain but my meaning is more something like um we could just trade things back and forth because we want reputation and clout and that's the end of it um or uh, we could have some scenario in which uh, we could have um intent towards patronage interact with the desire of others who are just wanting to trade back and forth even for their own ends of just making money and clout an, an image might be something like if these are a bunch of bored apes maybe we can um just gently influence those yachts to becoming something like a pontoon archipelago that people can sort of stay the course of the storm you know on for a little bit of time probably not that helpful as an analogy really but um yeah the point is something like um are there sort of big ticket moments of resourcing that can be um utilized to neutrify uh efforts that otherwise are very difficult to neutrify um where Tyler's mentioned 
mentioning uh, the notion of an event, I could envisage mintings of NFTs as results of, or as, as a artifact, partial kind of outcome of events of interaction where in, um, where there was deep care and intention and effort made in service of worthwhile interaction that itself was valuable to contribute to and belong to, but also to, to learn in and to gift something then to the commons beyond. That's seeking to be in touch with real pathways of education, as well as democratizing a participation in understanding and um, connection between people and, and in seeking to embed that connection back into local life, or at least into relationships, beginning in a more distributed sense first. And so there's the notion of something of a transitionary strategy that can um, uh, call on models of patronage to gain further wind to the sales as a result of um, those who aren't necessarily seeking to invest for what someone might say are the right reasons. They might just think there's reputation involved and because there's royalties of the trading of the NFTs and what have you. But that still seems to me to be, an, and I'm not saying that's the final piece, but as a, as a certain step forward. Um, there's another piece to mention here, which is in a slightly different direction. And I think just speaks to some of the, some of the dilemmas of technology in general and the increased and the acceleration of its development, we find ourselves in, uh, in the context of artificial intelligence, GPT-3, and that capacity to um, spray noise into the system. I'm somewhat a bit wary of uh, using technology as a means to somehow counter that capacity of technology. I mean, you already mentioned, well, what if the blockchain can, can be hacked in various ways? But um, that's another potential direction uh how it won't be too long before trusting someone's utterance is going to be a difficult thing and so communities engaging in some sort of you know interaction that was had some resilience to that noise by virtue of some integration with authenticating technology. Um, there's, you know, that throws up a lot of, and it's a big thing to throw up. I'm not, I'm not putting it forward with, you know, any conclusivity or something. Yeah. Well, I, um, I just add concretely, I experienced this uh, last night. Um, I was contacted on WhatsApp by an individual claiming to be a real person, but um, by probing this, I discovered it's a, probably just some complicated machine learning uh, chatbot. Um, and I, I could screen share and show you the really interesting conversation, but it's an individual claiming to be a real estate investor from Hong Kong, some kind of honeypot or phishing scheme or something. But um, I've had probably six of those in the past three weeks. Um, it's, it's really interesting. They send just a random message. And if you respond, they either do or don't respond, but um, they, they fish for information and who knows what the ultimate game is. Maybe it's just training. I don't know. 
but it's absolutely um, already beginning to infect our communication networks. And I mean, if you really visit any of the social media sites and start applying tools, uh, and I would point out that um, there are there are many people developing tools for capturing these things, right? So, so monitoring whether or not there's a, a falseness in the signal. Um, um, but it's it's occurring everywhere. Amazon reviews, uh, Reddit posts, um, all of these these avenues of uh, manipulating information and what we receive are now infected by um, bots of various complexities and nuance. So we're we're there. Um, it's going to be in the visual auditory space soon, right? It already has been with. Yeah. Yeah, by, I was going to say by prototype, right? Um, there are plenty of fairly good um, platforms that will do analysis. If you've got, you know, 15 minutes of speech, it'll kick out a surprisingly credible President Obama uh, and, uh, you know, uh, attach that to novel video and deep faking. And uh, yeah, uh, who, who would have thought that uh, the, um, you know, sort of mid 21st century would, um, at least in, in some part, be... Uh, dominated by like a Turing test arms race. Um, but that's about where we're going to find ourselves, I suspect, right? The yeah. kind of through the look, through the looking glass qualities. And it's one thing for it to replicate text, but it's something completely different if it starts to, um, you know, starts to be able to move into like video audio at that point, you know, the fragmentation of the information scape, which is already frankly pretty um, thorough at this point, but it'll be, <laughs> it'll be absolutely bonkers. Um yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. If we could reverse that with, you know, authenticity tagging or something. Yeah. Well, it would seem to me that the uh, that could only ever be part of the solution. It's the degree to which it's almost something like: can we build some resilience into the channels of invitation so that when the event commences, there's not so much chaos that it's impossible to uh, create the dynamics of genuine conversation rather than mob on mob, uh, whatever that becomes, some diatribe. Um, I'm curious, Evan, where you're at in your reflections. I, you've been listening for some time, and so I'm wondering what's mulling over for you. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the main thing that's been going on for me is feeling like there's a certain economic element that's not been present in the discussion about NFTs and so sort of internally griping about that. So in brief, um, there's a situation that happened already once with the transition to, um, you know, your sort of fiat currencies and fractional reserve systems, right? Whereby um, by, by decoupling, um, the supply of currency from any particular, um, you know, fixed physical quantity, then what you essentially get is the ability of those who are responsible for regulating the amount of currency produced um, to enrich themselves through seniorage and other processes, right? Um, so when you think about it, you know, you look at some of the theories that are becoming popular, especially um, on the left, say here in America, things like modern monetary theory, right? They're looking at the fact that the, the real, you know, goal of, of a currency in some sense ought to be to match um, all of the, the, the things that can be done that want to be done with the resources that, that could be put 
forward to do those things. And so there's going to be a sort of happy point with that, where you have the right amount of currency in the system in order to, you know, cause um, all of the uh, life aligned and, and positive uh, public projects to happen and that allow people to gain enough private resources to live uh, good private lives as well. And so it seems to me that, you know, regardless of getting into the specifics of MMT as an economic theory, which is way out of scope for this particular podcast, I think um, that, that, that something about this model is essentially on the right track. And so when you look at the issues that we've faced in our economy over the past couple of years, in fact, I think this really drives something home that, you know, we all experience being locked down mainly in our homes, not able to go out and do things that were meaningful to us, not able to see our friends. I know um, some people in the world are still in that position primarily. Um, I don't know how you are personally, Tim, now, but uh, some of my other friends in Australia are, are still feeling very constrained by these things. Um, and so this makes uh, doing projects which create value for you, your friends, your family, much more difficult and, and puts you at personal risk if you try to do this. Um, so... <clears throat> If we look at what happened over that time period, oh, well, it turns out that people got richer in pretty direct proportion to how closely connected they were to the central banks of the countries, right? Which, uh, of course, have the ability to issue currency and determine how much of it gets issued and therefore essentially what the value ends up being, right? So what happens when you flood the market, so to speak, with additional currency? Well, you get inflation like we've been experiencing. And you also tend to get this sort of phenomenon that I see NFTs as an instance of where these sorts of positional goods without much inherent value for creating or maintaining life um, begin to shoot up in perceived valuation. And things um, tend to become more of the aspect of, you know, sort of social status signaling games as far as, as, as the activities that, that culture is centering on and promoting as having some sort of shared value. Um, I'm reminded a lot of the way that fashion proceeded in the court of Louis XIV, for example, right? Um, <clears throat> whereby there was no real benefit to changing styles every couple weeks uh, to match what the king was doing, except for your position, your social position. And the sort of people who can, you know, in a very real sense, afford to do that are, are, are not you and I. They are not um, probably really any of the listeners uh, that, that might be experiencing this conversation in the future. And so um, I'm quite wary of things like NFTs, not because I'm worrying, uh, wary of the underlying technology. I'm, I'm in general pretty skeptical of the arguments that technology has a certain teleology to it and therefore we should be, you know, uh, we should avoid the development of certain types of technologies at all. Like we discussed earlier, I think that NFTs as a technological construct can have some, some pretty positive uses, some, some uses that I would like to see them put to. But uh, I'm far more interested in the sort of broader social forces which have caused this technology to be primarily put to use in order to give the idle rich places to spend their money. Um, in order to gain social status over other members of that particular uh, socioeconomic class. And so I think that hasn't really, um, that, that's more what I'm interested in talking about. And I want to talk about this in combination. So what was being spoken of right before you sort of called me back into the conversation, I was thinking of Baudrillard here, right? I was thinking of the progression of simulacrum levels, according to Baudrillard's work, um, Simulacra and Simulation. And, and so a lot of what was being spoken of reminded me of the sort of fourth level of, of simulacrum as Baudrillard describes it. Um, the one after the order of sorcery, um, where 
in, 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 in effect, the cultural products don't even need to pretend to be real. And, oh, doesn't that remind you a lot of, of a board at Yacht Club or something like this? It doesn't even need to pretend to be real. Um, and, and Baudrillard talks about how this is because the experiences of, of the lives of people are in essence so artificial and so insulated from the ground of, of life and of being that that everything is expected to be artificial. And this, of course, dovetails quite nicely with um, what you guys were speaking of immediately prior regarding the sort of authentication of utterances and, you know, just living in this sort of crazy theater, this Phil Dickian environment where nothing is real, nothing can be trusted. Well, you know, um, my, my natural inclination to this is, is to basically say, you know, forget NFTs, forget currency. I'm going to focus on the sort of things that are real to myself as a human animal, like animals, other animals, like plants, like the cultivation of food and the act of sitting in meditation, these sorts of things that really get you in touch with what it is to be an embodied creature. And so, you know, this, I, I do have a bit of an allergy to uh, all of the NFT discussions that are sort of happening in my corner of the newosphere, because I feel like they are sucking a lot of the air out of the room um, from the conversation surrounding embodiment and our our existence as creatures on a planet with limited resources um, where we need to figure out how to hold things in common. And I'm thinking of the conversation I had with Bonita and Forrest over on the Stoa about the deep connection between the notion of the commons and the notion of the sacred to kind of land us back in the sacred. So, so that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. I think that's very important, Evan. Um, I, 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 it's, it's crucial, I think, to, to tie things back to that. And it's certainly, well, in part, I think that's the reason really for the framing at the beginning, um, which is seeking to presence these notions. I think that I, I notice in myself, actually, I'm struggling to articulate the patterns that I'm feeling are there for me to articulate in this. There, there, there is something here and, and it's, it's come out in other contexts, and I think it can come out in this one. Um, there's a, I'm feeling a pressure to do so that's not coming from the three of you. I mean, there's a pressure to run this gauntlet a little bit um, because it feels like we're running a bit of a gauntlet in society in general. And as much as the return to the here and now and the sense of embodiment and real relationships with those around you and the the field that one is in um we are it's it's such a it's such an incredibly it, it can feel like a very large uh, impossible to bridge gap between that and an angle of understanding that's presencing such systemic risks and the power of technology and the immensity of all of that and so how to present some of that dynamic without losing where we are is, is really crucial. And I'm feeling that, that the reason why NFTs is, which is really for me, just a kind of like a placeholder for the affordances of Web3, something like that. Um, why that's so important is because it seems as though these opportunities there are these moments in technological possibility space that crop up and how we interact with those initially is 
going to have some important causal influence on the affordances to come next. And yes, okay, so that's that's one part. Um, another part is that there's something of in in the context of such a difficult conversation, and John's often quoting, I believe, Timothy Morton uh, in presencing the notion of hyperobjects quite a lot in his conversations, and I've certainly taken to doing so, or at least finding importance in that notion, uh, which in my comprehension speaks to, uh, you know, um, whether phenomena in reality of such complexity that we can approach it from many angles and we might find grapples onto, handholds onto, but um, in, in, the, in the majority, we require a kind of distributed dialogic process to maintain a sense of. It's often why long conversations are helpful or long periods of education and contemplation to get a sense of the dynamics that we're swimming in is important. I'm reminded of watching Joe Rogan speak to Daniel Schmachtenberg and Tristan Harris the other day. And um, Joe himself was undergoing a process of, ah, oh, he was actually searching for that exact word. How do I stay with this? It's like, well, what do we do about all of that? What how, People are just going to forget about it. They're just going to go back to doing what they're doing. They can't, I can't hold on to it. It's like, whoa. And it's kind of like that. And so what, what to do in response to that? Well, part of what I'd put forward, and it would be that something like, um, and I suppose this has been spoken about a lot. Uh, I'm not, these words are coming to me now. There's probably better ways to put this, but something like, um, uh, it seems important to enable a dynamic or an attractor some space, some way of being with each other in a coordinated place in time that is attractive to participate in and to be in, but where that, it, that it, attraction is essentially developed on the basis of a kind of authenticity of interaction and a deep ethical integrity. And so the question is, can there be something like the the, can the perturbations of the technosphere and the, the attention that's careening this way and that towards the next shiniest thing, which might not actually be that novel, as Anderson's even pointing out, might just be a repetition of previous things, and there's archetypes everywhere. But can, can we... Can we bridge, invite, influence, energy of attention so as to neutrify a distributed, embodied protocol of engagement that births deeply worthwhile artifacts and opportunities for education and contribution and belonging to an increasing number of people without sacrificing the coherence necessary in order for the integrity of that ethical interaction to hold 
such that coordinations of genuinely wiser response to the real patterns of the world at a systemic level can be appropriately addressed in people's lives. Um, something like that it needs to be better said. But you see, I'm trying to link back up the embodied with the bigger picture. The answer is yes. <laughs> Let's just assume it. Uh, otherwise, what do we what do we do? What are we groping for? What are we reaching for? Anderson, I saw you wanted to. Well, I was just going to say it's. I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, so you know, a lot of the you know the specifically kind of economic stuff that you were pointing towards, Evan, is sort of what I was you know, gesturing at quickly and broadly when I was thinking about sort of layers of abstraction and the disconnection from life, right? And so, you know, post Bretton Woods too, we can argue all day about whether or not gold was a, was a good thing to tie anything to either or not. But the point was, right, like we've had these increasing layers of abstraction upon abstraction upon abstraction until what we've got is this like glass onion of purely notional values that's so radically disconnected from the world that, um that it seems like people's valuation, right, um, is is completely screwed, right, in, in a way that, you know, it was probably always a bit off kilter, but, you know, all the more so. So, you know, to reference sort of the upper levels of, of Baudrillard, it's true, we've got this through the looking glass kind of quality. And, you know, uh, at some level, you know, the Board Ape Yacht Club is perhaps an even more egregious instance of conspicuous consumption than you know a million dollar Mickey Mantle baseball card. Both, of course, are the bizarre form of artificial scarcity with no particularly can't really eat either. And um, you know, but uh, but you know, it, it does seem as though these things sort of move away from the good. So in in the broad good, in the sense of the commons, right, the collective good. Um, you know, when I contemplate that kind of end of things, I find myself very much torn. I mean, I do have kind of a, a bit of a neo-Luddite streak. I'm very selective in my adoption of technologies, always have been. So there are th some things I like to be very front of the line on and some things I adopt it very, very slowly. And there have been a bunch of digital technologies that I've adopted slowly. I mean, I've only had my first mobile phone for fewer than 10 years uh, because I was unconvinced of the effects of it. And I still stay away from most forms of social media because I am unconvinced uh, about, you know, about what, you know, what the weighing it out in terms of what it offers me and what it's doing for other people and so on and so forth. So that kind of desire to throw my clogs into the gears of the machine sometimes, or I guess to, to borrow Tyler's term, you know, to pick up a hammer, wonder what to do about it and decide I should put it through the front of my monitor. Um, does seize me sometimes. And when we're talking about this kind of thing with NFTs, part of me is like, no, exactly that. We should reground things back into some fundamentals. Like, I don't know if I want to roll things back to absolute biological basics. I, I would still like to be able to like read Goethe and have a bit of electric light and maybe a radio. But the point is, you know, like pulling things down to these fundamentals of what it means to be alive, what it means to be embodied, you know, what it means to, to have that consciousness and subjective perspective and the interplay of that with the world is obviously the root of value, obviously, right? Um, but people don't want to go near it. Uh, and, you know, the flip side of that is always asking this other question. And the question is like, well, okay, but what can we do with it if it's around? And so then it's a little like, 
if you'll allow me a crude analogy. It's a little like asking the question, is harnessing this technology, this sort of technology and cultural movement in some way, more like erecting a solar panel or putting up a water wheel that's powered by lemmings rushing off a cliff? And I'm not totally sure which of those it is, right? One of them is like, okay, well, if it's ambient and it's around and people are doing it anyway, can we use this to power something that might actually halfway be useful? And that's the solar panel. And I don't think that most of the versions of it, as I sort of pointed out that currently exist, do not strike me as being particularly good, but I see potential in them and maybe potential to do things like, as you mentioned, right, grounded in the real world or things that allow us to say, conduct a decentralized, right form of exchange that cuts things like central banks out of the loop or something, right? Um, but then part of me sometimes wonders to what extent, you know, this is one more instance of a kind of artificially produced form of novelty that's a kind of gold chain loop through the pleasure centers. And therefore that, you know, the, the, the onrush of this is something that at best, right, I'm going to used to turn a water wheel as people go over a cliff with it. I don't know. That sounds very dire and it's not going to make me any fans in the tech sector. But anyway, I'm not sure where I'm exactly where I'm going with that, except to say that a lot of what you said, Evan, is quite poignant, is resonant for me. Uh, I feel similarly, although, yeah, um, I'm always sort of weighing this question. It's like, okay, should we be pulling things down or is there something here? Like, is there, can we do something with this? Um, I, I did my decade of sort of rejecting the trappings of the modern world, and I eventually left the cave um, for a handful of reasons. Uh, and I still wonder to what extent that was a Faustian bargain. But, um, you know, there definitely is some power in being able to tap the existing structures um, to sort of subvert those structures or something. Uh, so I wonder if this is one of those cases, I guess. But anyway, sorry, I'm just talking and talking now. No, no, I, I think that's, I think uh, these are these are all really great points and the ones that need to be continually prevailingly raised. Um, and I would say the answer to your question is yes, the inclusive or, um, it's, it's gonna be both. That's just my sense of it. You know, if we're collectively kind of ascending Maslow's hierarchy, towards self-realization where less and less of our time is being spent on the purely biological maintenance of function. And we have all this abundant resource in the West. You know, we have decisions about what to do with it. And Evan's point about how our monetary value acting as a signal being tightly coupled to what is actually present and what is capable of being done with that. Uh, there are financial instruments that have regulated that, for instance. So fractional reserve banking and the manner in which one loans money to what would become a novel experimental process of the creation of some new company or some new idea um, was it was gated by this process of the institution itself, the banking institution, collectively deciding whether or not the return on that is going to be a real investment because they're, they're looking at the marketplace and they're saying, well, is your idea good enough for us to give you the chance to produce novelty and incur this kind of debt so that we can recover actual value. And in the ever increasing pace of novelty, where we actually have fewer and fewer gated processes, where we're in such abundance that everything is going to be tried, what is in fact the process by which one signals value or finds how to, to associate it? Um, and I think what happens is once, once you lose that signal in the wider space, in the marketplace, when you can no longer trust 
external sources, you collapse back to the self. You collapse back to your own interior space to recognize whatever's, whatever's there. And, and so in that sense, um, what we're developing is a, is a complex network of individuals who are trusting solely within themselves to recognize whatever it is they can um, extend it out into that space. So, so I'm listening to you three talk and I'm thinking, okay, these guys are saying things that, that are matching things that I'm thinking too. And that is giving me a sense of both uh, kind of confirmation bias, right? But also the recognition of a potential networking effect that may be um, a, a type of grounding phenomenon, right? Because in, in some sense, our bodies, our physical bodies, the record that they represent is the accrual of that continual search for novelty, right? And that what we sit on top of as conscious beings is that record of all that which was successful up to this point uh, and unsuccessful in, in lots of different ways. But uh, the physical forms themselves are that deep tissue record of, of continually searching for what is a set of patterns which can persist in perpetuity. And I, I think that if we just presence that aspect of needing uh, the wisdom of maintaining contact with each other as the, the fundamental forces by which we search the novelty space, rather than getting lost in the abstractions. You know, you look on the back of the dollar bill, it's the perfect image, right? It's, it's Maslow's hierarchy, but the eye itself is separated and floating, distinct, abstract from that embodied you know, process, right? There's something really interesting there. And that symbolism, um, the the uh, the ability for us and our observations to separate itself from what has been um, the record of the past. You used this word earlier on, the concrescence, and I really love this word um, because what it what it sits at is this middle point between um, in all complex systems, both the pre-operational and the post-operational sense. So you have nascence and you have senescence. And I think you can't really escape these categories. And any system which careening towards novelty, which ex fundamentally excludes both the, the, the developing component that will ultimately become the piece that inhabits that space and also the, the decay products, right? The, the thing that, that comes out the other side of that machine. When you lose contact with those two distinct spaces or the three total, um, that's when you start to see really significant damage being done to the whole web of interaction. And that's, that's where I hope, I, I think, to, to try to bring together um, by virtue of influence, by, by real influence on each other, the total number of perspectives that we can reliably introduce in the conversation that gives us that, that kind of perspectival certainty Right, that we're not just looking at abstractions in the propositional realm, uh, but that, that there's really a fuller sense of all the different ways of knowing about how it is we can, we can sustain and build these, these living tissues embedded in all these abstractions. Um, and so, yeah, yeah that's, that's it. I, I feel like the best we can do is just talk to each other as best we can. And there will be components, broadly speaking, which have no sense of wisdom in the construction of these tools. But as they are endlessly multiplied and heaped onto the table before us as a kind of massive banquet, there will be a, a significantly uh, representative part.
part of the population which can collectively decide which of those tools to, to uh, grab hold of and then how to use them uh, moving forward. And that's, um, that's the best I can do right now, right? If I can uh, quote and then paraphrase William Gibson, uh, uh, the street finds its own uses, but so does the Sangha. Yes. So I think we got to be careful, though, about the uses that the street finds or that the Sangha finds. You know, I think back to the phrase, the medium is the message, right? When we think about the sort of medium that not just NFTs, Web 3.0, hell, Web 2.0, 1.0, you know, our our mutual friend uh, Forrest Landry points out the inherently toxic nature of technology as currently constituted, right? Um, In that we do not currently know as a species or as individuals, how to create this level of technology in such a way that it can participate in a closed cycle of resource recycling in the manner that life does. So when I die, fungi will eat me, I will turn into dirt, trees will grow out of what I used to be, my water will be recycled into the atmosphere and other life can continue, right? But when we create computer chips with, you know, uh, a, a massively globified economy with, you know, the extreme EUV technology and all of the tailings that come from mining the heavy metals that are required and all of the damage done to the environment there. Well, we don't really know how to plug that back into the environment in a way that's supportive of really any kind of life. Right. And, and, and furthermore, um, it's not, not just this aspect of it. Um, but, but when you think about the current moment, you know, um, someone else, you guys might know, Yosha Bach has made the point a few times that, we essentially have burned, you know, several hundred million years worth of trees. That's what fossil fuels essentially are, several hundred million years worth of organic matter from mainly plants, right? And we kind of only have really one shot at that level of accessible negentropy that we can then turn into useful work, right? And so the question that occurs to me is, well, how much of that energetic allocation that as far as we can tell as a species is sort of a one-shot thing, how much of that are we spending on things like Amazon Alexa and, you know, NFT apes and, and, and other sort of, um, you know, just kind of crazy shit, to be honest, right? Suburbs. Suburbs are another great example, but at least suburbs have some connection to like humans wanting a sense of physical safety, raising a family, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, I I guess where I'm going with this is I'm actually not as optimistic as like, yes, there will be a way. No, I I, I think that that choice is a thing that exists and we have the ability to make bad choices as well as good ones as individuals and as a species. And so, you know, when I, when I look at the current situation, I think that people are far too focused on the cultivation of novelty and not focused enough on the notion of cyclical recycling of, of, you know, the, the, the outputs of our lives, um, basically. So, so is the output of what we do, the input into some other living process with which we can coexist, or is it just spewing a trail of indigestible inorganic waste all over the planet? You know, it, it's not clear to me that we're anywhere close to striking the right balance with this. And it's not clear to me that we really get a second chance. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, can I, can I squeeze one one yeah. observation real quick? Um, we we notice um, in in let's say like the the distinction between all of the manners in which mankind destroys the natural environment. Um, we we've observed something like a keyhole species or, or keystones. We had we had different uh, names for it, but it's um, where if you change the components in uh, uh, any given environment they may, based on their inherent programming, completely destabilize something, right? And, and so they're behaving in a kind of similar way where they're, they're not really, they're not cognizant of their impact on the environment. They're, the external process is further destabilizing things. But at some point, homeostasis is reached uh, via some other process. And I think these other processes represent these continual epicycle additions, right? So there is another predator which eats a prey, there's another parasite which parasitizes um, and, and then limits the population growth of a particular species. And so what we're looking at right now, in a sense, is uh, in, the, in that broader sphere, you have these very dominant organisms in the marketplace that are wreaking havoc uh, in total. And what we're looking for is another set of organisms to act as an epicyclic friction or rebalancing mechanisms to re reach towards homeostasis. Uh, that whatever actions we are engaged in, if we are to be considering those actions uh, good or eusocial or however you want to frame it, uh, if they're to be distinct, it's, it's acting on the, the real existence of those uh, imbalancing factors um, by, by the, the continual transformation of the, the products of that activity. And so I don't think you will be able to stop, except with violence, people utilizing something like NFTs to do absolutely, you know, worthless things like the Board 8 Yacht Club. But if I can somehow, right now in my conversation with you, design some capacity or some conversation that translates that, that product, the resources, right? So if, if one out of every 10 person who owns a Board 8 Yacht Club can take the money that they accrued from it and I can convince them to utilize that in some fundamentally distinct uh, uh, effort, which is going to, to return us to some embodied sense, then we're, what we're talking about is developing a, a type of parasitic process perhaps, but in a useful way. Sorry, uh, children again. Um. <clears throat> When I alluded earlier and mentioned this idea of like passing through a, a, a dark age without getting into this too deeply, um, you know, I've gone through a series of phases over sort of 25 years in how I look at this stuff. And in, you know, the last maybe three, four, uh, four, I concluded that, um, that the most of the choices that seem like the early choices, you know, can we preserve uh, our way of life? Uh, can we preserve our civilization? The answer is no, no, definitely not. Uh, you know, the question now is like, you know, so, and not even counting whatever the hell, but you know, microplastics, um, you know, um, species uh, um, extinction, et cetera, et cetera, just on the, the greenhouse gas front, right? The question is like two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, six, eight, you know, at some point it's a planet of jellyfish. 
So I take it as a given that our civilization and its current configuration is going to collapse. Of course it is. Um, and okay, every civilization collapses sooner or later. That's fine. Um, the question when we think about it, I mean, you know, to what extent most of the kind of novelties that we are currently producing sort of make it through the narrow gate you know, who the hell knows? The Romans had all kinds of interesting stuff that did not make it through the narrow gate. You know, we lost concrete, we lost uh, wine vending machines for quite a while. Um, I still don't have a wine vending machine, so that still may be lost to antiquity. Um, but, you know, uh, there were some things that did make it through. So technologically speaking, for instance, you know, obviously the kind of like mass, you know, despoiling that's required for the sorts of like electronic technology that we have. And, and it, I mean, it's gross and horrific, right? Between um, plastics, water use, uh, rare earths, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, that stuff's all a nightmare um, to say nothing of like the human cost of its production. But I often think about it in slightly simpler terms. So the technology that I often settle on in this respect is radio. I don't think radio is going anywhere as long as there are like, you know, if there's more than a hundred thousand humans on the planet, we're still going to have radio. You can build a radio with very easily, frankly, with, you know, a, a few relatively simple parts and strips of metal and a lemon. You can build a radio. Radio isn't going anywhere. Like there's a sense in which unless we absolutely crater our complexity into the ground and it's a like Cormac McCarthy's the road style, you know, murdering each other for a can of Coca-Cola in a burning wasteland. And who knows, might be. But otherwise, the likelihood that we're going to preserve some of those technologies, I think, is pretty high. Like we've ratcheted ourselves into a certain kind of place. Now, the hope is, of course, obviously, that those technologies are preserved in a kind of like, you know, distributed, decentralized way that allows us to preserve some notion of community and some you know, basis of some of the knowledge and wisdom that we've gotten without, um, you know, without carrying with it all of the despoiling aspects. But in terms of like our complexity dropping down, guaranteed. And probably, it's so hard to say this without saying, seeming callous, but I suspect I'll be a victim of it. So I think it's okay. I think we need to go through that collectively. Um, it would be nice if billions and billions of people didn't die obviously, because that's going to disproportionately affect parts of the world that are socioeconomically disadvantaged. And in many of those places, it's already hitting them, right? Uh, as as uh, uh, a WAG recently said, you know, you're, most people's vision of collapse is just living at the same standard of living as the people who pick their coffee. So, you know, I think that it would be good if that isn't going to happen. I don't see any way that that isn't going to happen, the way that things are lined up now. I don't think that our various sort of social collective actions. I don't think that our technologies, I don't think any of those things are going to at this point steer us away from, you know, the, the, you know the, that particular gauntlet. The question is, you know, can we actually extract something from this particular period? Like, did we, did we really come up with everything that was worth doing 3000 years ago? Or did we actually come up with something worth keeping? And when I think about something like radio, I think that's actually maybe worthwhile. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that kind of large scale communication tool that's relatively integrated with the environment is maybe actually worthwhile. Um, I, I don't know if we should keep antibiotics, but I sort of want to keep some version of modern dentistry. That's, that's, that's a preference I have. I don't know. 
Um, yeah, I've heard some conjecture about dentistry even. Can you believe it? Really? Well, What's just the I, <laughs> orthodont, orth, orthodontistry, uh, to be more specific. I, I don't know. I don't know much about it. So I, I raise it more as a joke than anything else. But the idea is that um, there's something like the way we've been uh, uh, feeding children foods that don't require them to chew as much has led mm. to, a, 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 you know, has violated the integrity of the jaw structure or what have you, which perpetuates the teeth needing becoming out a certain way, but then braces being put on actually ends up fucking up your capacity um, to, I don't know the right terms, uh, fucks up your mouth basically. And that a lot of people who actually end up getting braces later on in life have to get complete replacements because there's some process it's got a name. It's something of the, the repairing process. It's like, you don't allow the teeth to move as much. And so they, um, lose some of their resilience, something like that. Anyway, um, that's the type of, when I hear that stuff come up on my YouTube feed, I start to sweat because I'm like, I really don't want to pay attention to this because I've got a false tooth. I had braces, you know, which actually leads me to the point I'd like to make as we move toward the two hour mark here, which is, um, it comes back to attachment and how difficult it is to be, <laughs> be creatures that attach to things and lose them. And, um, it reminds me, uh, so Evan, you suggested to me that I read a book by Peter Kingsley called Catafalque uh, about a month oh. and a half ago. And I mentioned to Anderson that I finished, read that book and I took a break from it for a while, but I finished it the other week. And um, I found it an impactful book and I'd like to reach out to Peter Kingsley. I'd, I don't know if he's interested to talk, but it seems to me he is, um, he's quite steadfastly taking a certain perspective and part of me resists it part of me respects it and it's multifaceted i'm not going to get to it all but the word catafalque is a somewhat obscure italian word as evan and anderson will know and i think i mentioned this to tyler as well that means um the something like the 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 wooden base that a coffin is laid on during a funeral ceremony. And so the word was used in part because it came to him in a dream, but also because it's representative of the attitude toward the collapse of culture, which he says is not so much collapsing, but already dead, and that the right relation to it, our right relation to what has become of Western culture is to treat it as such and to grieve it in some important sense. And it's not a particularly inspiring message at face value. And I'm just noting in myself the challenge that is made when we really breathe through the reality of the toxicity that <laughs> that we've been I, everything that that we've been raised in that we are we're not just that you know there's of course the other side and there's value to be found in 
in the muck and all of that. Um, but it's not, it's not a particularly inspiring message if I just have the feeling of um, tending to a coffin. Like what comes after it's buried? You know, what comes afterwards? Am I, who will be there for my coffin? Is it just, we don't have anyone there for us? Are we giving up on that process? Are we, are we giving up on some process of, I agree with the move to, to, to die well, to practice dying well, something like that. I resonate with that strongly, but that, but that has to be embedded for me in a, a dedication to what's worth dying for that there is there's something worthwhile say to affirm in the process that one doesn't but it's so challenging because i want to say something like that one doesn't just leave all the mess for the children and yet the children's mess is the children's mess and it's theirs to be in relationship to and so there's that dynamic of well obviously uh, at some stage one's watch is over and it's time to go to sleep. And that is what it is. It's not there to fix the world. It's a ridiculous notion. And so we have to accept, again, our inefficacy and our incapacity in relation to all that's around us. And yet, nevertheless, there seems, there seems still to be a way of holding that and affirming that process that is for something of a more transcendent worthwhile again for me language that i find solace in in my own expression is loving transformation and so when i think of what you know our time might be worth remembering for and there'll be so much it's remembered for that maybe we don't want to have our names pinned to on the placard but and there are others who can make this point, these points better than me. Um, but there seems to be such an opportunity to, to gather together for, I say something, oh, I don't want to always end up being a bit too grandiose. I don't want to contain myself behind these damn words. But there's something like grieving with a purpose, you know, not just grieving for the sake of grieving. And yet grieving has to be something that is, for, again for itself because you know not not to objectify it not to you know the language of extract extraction is an interesting one because we we have to extract and we also have to sow back into the soil as evan's pointing towards that's going to happen anyway um and so if we are just to the soil which we are then what is that what is the right way to go um it seems to me there's a prof there's a profound there's a profound say moment dynamic to gather with people at all and to be in relation to what is in processes of communication with some attempt broadly construed towards the good enabling choice as as Forrest puts it which is always a helpful expression in flows like these that 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 there's a way for that 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 is an attractor and what can come of that the significance of that the significance of the earnestness towards that what that means for the mutual participation in art in some deeply affirmative sense in some sense that 
I don't know. Weaves us in together with the inexorable patterns that we're inevitably a part of. And yet at the same time, affirms the dignity of our participation in them and our right as life to be and appreciate life, despite all that that also implies and all of the many ills of our ignorance that we are perpetuating. Anyway, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to express some of that. It's, um, there's, there's, there's uh, these conversations, you know, they, they are for me part of, they're part of an invitational process for those who are listening. Um, and it, perhaps motivated again from this point that I think Evan made, but we've all resonated on, which is something like how can the, I don't know, the excesses of our behavior actually afford some nutrition for for others um how to actually be part of some nutritive process and well you know the invitation's open to further conversations here but that um i don't know there's there's invitations for those wishing to participate in really all that's been discussed here um Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just leave it at that. I'm conscious of the time and knowing that uh, best not keep each other too long. Um, not sure how you're all feeling about that. Want to open the space for anyone if they have closing reflections or if they'd like to take it on. If we'd all like to stay. Can I just say that um, in the course of speaking, there you twice paused and said, "I don't know." Right, there was a, twice kind of a, a, a break where you're like, I don't know, uh, in, in the way in which we're all maybe slightly chastising when our language fails us, right? Mm. And I think we have, I mean, you know, that's a very good instance of what Evan was talking about when we're talking about dropping into that moment of aporia, right? That the, the, the sort of the profound unknowing. And I think maybe there's something captured there, which is like, you know, of course, at some level, we are all, you know, lost in the in the labyrinth with very few markers. But there's a big difference at some level between being lost in the labyrinth by oneself and being lost in the labyrinth in company, right? Uh, being being able to go with three other people in, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz fashion, uh, you know, has a lot to recommend it. Um, even if we don't necessarily know exactly where we came from and we don't know where precisely where we're going, <laughs> right? Uh, and we may be, may be variably convinced of each other's navigational skills or where, how we're collectively making these decisions. There is actually something I think really profound about being in that situation, right? Being in, in a kind of intersection within the aporia and within the I don't know. Um, and I think that you know, speak, speaking to, you know, what you have in mind, sort of with this whole uh, project, Tim, that, that that extends past just the four of us. And this has been like an absolutely fascinating uh, conversation. Um, uh, but obviously it also extends to other people, 
that are going to resonate, that are going to connect. You know, people are going to hear this and they're going to resonate and they're going to connect and they're going to get the distinct sense that maybe they're not a precisely exactly the same intersection in the labyrinth as we are, but they can hear us like one row over. Uh, and that matters. You know, I think it really means something anyway. So. Yes, that's right. They can hear me banging my head into the same piece of damn wall again and again. <laughs> Circling around the sentences. Yeah, knocking walls and laying uh, breadcrumbs and right. uh, sending out bad signals, all these different metaphors. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling like it might be worthwhile to close this up here. I just want to thank you all again. Um, thank you, Evan. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Addison. Each one of you, I there's such a story to tell. I often do get the feeling that I'm saying, maybe it would be better if I just, this, I guess we can never, we, we can never really reveal our whole selves or something like that, but um, have a lot of appreciation for you all. And um, thank you for joining in this uh, emergent process where we, in some sense, leave behind so much of ourselves so as to actually bring fully what we are to what is actually here and so in that sense we do get to know each other quite quite well um i guess this is just a nod to i guess some of my unprofessionalism as a podcaster and just to say to those listening um well i just said it that i appreciate you all very much so all right i'll close this up Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider sharing them or leaving a review, and perhaps also to consider supporting it on patreon.com voicecraft. It will help sustain the podcast, build the network, and make possible more community events and educational resources.